some good truth. My name is Josh. I lead students. By the way, be praying for us next weekend. We'll be off at winter camp. It's our biggest. Yeah. Thank you, Colby. Bringing up our biggest bunch, and we're praying for kids to be saved. Here's kind of my fatherly prayer over the kids, is that they would leave that camp a little more comfortable in the skin God put them in, because the teenage years are just hard, and that's my prayer for them, that they walk out comfortable because Christ loves them. So pray with me on that this week. Um, This passage is awesome. Luke gave this to me a while ago. I don't know why. It's about adoption. I'm adopted, but I never think about my adoption, so I'm the worst spokesperson for it because I was adopted as a baby. My dad and mom are awesome. I've never once thought of going back and finding anybody who gave me up. So I'm adopted. This passage is about adoption. I'm not going to talk about my adoption at all other than my dad's over there, and he's amazing. He's my best man. That's part of the truth of this is you're adopted to an amazing dad. Now let's talk about that dad. So here's what we're talking about today. If you were to gauge the depth of Christianity for someone in your life, how would you go about doing it? As I've thought through this message and been reading through this, as you think about Christianity, just take a second. So Luke, last week and last couple weeks, it's been about people in the spirit and people in the flesh. People in the spirit are Christians, are born again, are saved, or whatever. People not in the spirit are non-Christians, not saved, headed for destruction, a lot of bad things. But here's the, here's the truth. These people who are now in Christ, in the spirit, being led by the spirit, how would you gauge the depth of their Christianity? Like, just think through, what does that look like in your head? So I'm guessing a lot of people will say, Bible knowledge. So as I went to Bible boot camp and I walk out of Bible boot camp and I know the whole Bible now, now my Christianity depth is, is deep. What are some other ways we can gauge our depth of Christianity? Think about it, because we got Christians and then we got Christians who have like a deeper sense of their Christianity. It could be knowledge, anything else? How good they look on the outside, how much they're loving people, how outward focused they are, to use one of our words. Lots of ways. Here's what I would say. One guy, probably a year ago at a talk, he said, the way I gauge people's Christianity is I pray with them. I thought, sounds shallow, like that's a weird way to gauge someone's Christianity. And he said, I listen to hear how they talk to their dad. Think about that. When you pray, are you praying to, oh, majestic, mighty, oh, wonderful, so far out there, God, amazing, holy, blah, 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 God? Are you praying to dad? And that was his point. That's how he starts to gauge is, are you talking to dad who loves you? Are you talking to the distant God that the Mormons believe in, the Muslims believe? All these other guys have this distance between them and God. Is that the same way you pray? And this is what this passage is going to get after. Luke forever told me, you really need to watch Duck Dynasty because I'm into hunting. I'm like, that sounds lame. So I started watching it, and I love it. Not not so much because of the hunting. They pray at the end. And those of you, especially you guys who struggle to pray and, like, make it sound holy or whatever, at the end of every show, the granddad prays and says, Father, thank you for this catfish. Thank you for these pickles. Thank you for this ketchup. We love you. Amen. He knows his dad. He loves his dad. He talks to his dad. That's the point of this passage. What is your view of dad? What is your view of dad? Do you, what do you think of when you think of God is my dad? That's a heavy, heavy topic. And that's what this passage gets right after. Uh, one of the books that kind of shaped me in big ways, 
I became a Christian 18, and then kind of the course, I started reading. I'd never really read. And I started reading Christian books, and one of those books was called Knowing God. And there's a chapter, like 19, I think, called Adoption of God. And here's a passage from there. Here's what he says. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, get this. It means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. You may know tons of Bible. You may have systematic theology memorized. You may know Greek. You may serve every weekend with the poor. But if God is not your dad, your Christianity is bottom shelf, very low level. How is your dad? That's the point of this. Is this exciting? We get to talk about our dad in heaven. Here's this passage breaks up nicely. We're going to talk about being adopted by God. There's the truth that we've been adopted. There's the tension that goes with that. There's the treasure behind being adopted by God. And there's the test for his children. Four T's, you are welcome. You will remember them. The truth, the tension, the treasure, and the test. You guys ready? I was so excited. Let's read verse 14 again. Here's the truth of adoption. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Truth is, if you are being led by the Spirit of God, God sees you as his kid. He no longer sees you in the panoramic, like, senior photo of high school as just one of these many heads out there. He sees you personally, and you are his kid. We were just at a birthday party yesterday, and there's like 40 kids. I don't notice any of the kids other than that they're there, but I know my boys. And you are now God's boy or God's girl. Amen? If you are being led by the Spirit. So here's what's tricky about this. People like to give gospel presentations that are simple. I get that. So how do you become a Christian? Believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Leave your old life behind, come to Jesus. Repent and believe. There's a very simple way to give a gospel presentation. You come to Jesus. Gospel assurance is a whole different thing. Now you're walking in what you think is the Christian life. How are you assured that you are a Christian? Here's what a lot of people do. Well, they say, I did what I was supposed to do in that gospel presentation. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed a prayer. I came up to the front at camp. I did this. And that's not how the Bible lays out gospel assurance. It's are you actively, this verb here is, are you actively presently being led by the Holy Spirit? If so, you're a Christian, and if so, you're a child of God. So here's what a lot of people, well, what's it mean to be led by the Spirit? This is free. I thought long and hard about this. It means you are led by the Spirit. People want to, like, get this checklist and just know, it. is that me? And the reality is, when you leave here, when you wake up on Monday, when you go to work, when you plan out your budget with your spouse, when you think towards the future, is the Spirit an active part of your life? Are you being led continually by the Holy Spirit? If so, you have been adopted by God because you're a Christian. If you want, you can go back through. Luke's done a great job preaching. It basically is... Are you more and more thinking about godly things and spirit-led things and more and more trying to squash out that things would be against that? If so, you're being led by the Spirit. If so, you're a child of God. Good news? Amazing. The, best, the first time I ever preached here, back at Second Mile, I was preaching on prayer, I think. 
And I was trying to get the idea of what does it mean to pray to God as Father? And I turned on Good Morning America in the morning, and the visual I got was just perfect. So you guys know military officials. What if you all have varying degrees of, like, what does a military person mean to me? So if I'm a lowly lieutenant, whatever, a five-star general comes in, scary. I salute. I do everything. There's awe and reverence and fear, and he's the man in charge. The military is in charge. They're the boss. But here's what this passage says. The five-star general, the commander-in-chief, the baddest dude in the military, God, is also your dad. And the saluting and the awe and all that isn't the defining factor of your relationship anymore. He's my dad. And here's how it played out. I love these. Guys are off to war. They surprise their kids. So this one I saw. Kids are like, oh, we got a surprise. And they turn on the screen and... There's their dad. What happens in that moment? Did you clean your room? What's your grade on math? It's nothing but joy and love and a beautiful connection between dad and child. And that's what this truth is. God, who is the biggest, baddest dude in the universe, crush all of his enemies, is also your dad. And I get to look at him and say, that's my dad. Dad. That's the truth of adoption. Amen? We could end right now, and if that truth really sunk in, our lives would never be the same. But the reality is there is a huge, huge tension. Let me read this other quote. J.I. Packer says this. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, because this God is the same God the Jews worship, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, get this, this is so good, is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption. That's the point. Learn the Bible, learn theology, do loving stuff for people. But if dad is being left behind, you're missing Christianity. You have been adopted. You are a son. You are a daughter of the almighty king of the universe. That's your dad. Good, good, good stuff. And this is why I love this passage. Here's where I spent the most of my time studying. There is a tension to that. The reality is the way God views us and relates to us has been changed instantly and permanently for all of eternity. I am always his son that he loves. But the way I view God is a struggle, and there's a tension there. My view of my dad is oscillating, and it's kind of a roller coaster, and we have dad issues, and certain things kick in, and it doesn't get re reciprocated like it should. God sees me as his kid, and I see him as dad, kind of, in most, or most of the time, and we're all like that to varying degrees. How many of you guys are involved or thinking about getting involved in adoption, foster care sort of deal we got going on a lot? <clears throat> so just a little FYI, we got another meeting coming up February 23rd over at uh, Gilbert to kind of bring us together again. And they're going to talk about this reality that there's a tension involved with adoption. And it's not a clean-cut, easy process. There's this thing called attachment disorder. Have you guys heard of this? Attachment disorder is... A kid gets brought into a family at varying ages. Legally, I'm now his dad. The kid sees me as dad, maybe. That guy, scary guy. So God sees me as dad. 
I'm supposed to see him in the same way. This upward focus when we're looking at God is a struggle. And what the adoption world calls it is attachment disorder. And I went, I was reading this book called The Connected Child, and it's supposed to help families who are bringing in adopted kids to get them connected and actually feel the love of their dad and their mom. And I think all these things just hit right home spiritually with how we view our God in heaven. So let's go. Here's how it works in the, we got it. Because of attachment disorder, a scared child cannot grasp. So if you start to go into the adoption foster care, they're going to talk through, you're his dad, but there's a process involved for him to feel that. And here's what a child cannot grasp. And this is beautiful because this passage gets it. Sermons, lectures, or discussions. So you bring in a kid. I'm your dad. Sit down. Dad, mom. You see that? That's dad. That's mom. You got it. Let's. Here's a quiz. Write down who's your dad, who's your mom. Okay, good. You, it's not like an intellectual academic thing for these kids. There's no sort of logical reasoning with them to tell them, I'm your dad. We get that with God because we can, those who struggle with our view of God, it's not like some guy comes and says, sit down. Let's open up some systematic theology. It says here, God loves you. You get it? It says here, God's your dad. You get that? All right, then get out of here. It says it right there. It's a slow, relational, more felt than taught process of feeling God as dad. Adopted kids, foster kids who struggle, it's a slow process of feeling like they are part of the family. We are no different with our spiritual dad. Sermons, lectures, discussions aren't the complex reasoning, logic, or stories. You're not going to draw the family tree and put them on the family tree and explain how the hierarchy of family. They don't get that. Their, their brain is in fear mode. They're scared. They don't trust you. You're not going to teach them to believe this. You're going to help them feel it. Philosophical discussions or abstract concepts. Do you know what the word love means? Have you ever heard agape love? It means unconditional, godlike love. Do you get that? That's what I feel for you. They don't get that. They've got to feel the agape love. We've got to feel the agape love. We are, there's an attachment disorder with us and God to varying degrees. And no amount of mental assent is going to get us to where we need to be. Solving puzzles or mathematics. If I ever adopt a kid, he will have to solve some math. But the rest of you. Again, it all just goes to, there's, and guys struggle. I'm a black and white logical guy. And what this is saying is black and white logic doesn't work when someone doesn't feel like they're your child. And we'll get to this, and God knows that about this, and he addresses that. So here's the next thing. Here's how attachment disorder, so those of you who've been through training, it'll talk through a lot of this. A fearful child will. So you've got a kid brought into your home. He doesn't quite trust you yet. There's a lot of fear left. How is he going to address you? And here's kind of what happens, and they kind of train you through in this foster care stuff. They run away and hide. Think about that. Guys, you struggle with lust and struggle to the things that go with lust to varying degrees. When you screw up, do you run to God? Or do you run away and hide? That's your dad. If, if I started messing in that area and screwed up and I called my dad, he would come over, he'd hug me, he'd take me out, he'd reassure me that he loves me, he'd help me get it fixed, 
He would be there for me. Yet when we try to think of God in those terms, we run away. Because he's mad. And he's angry. And I screwed up. Yeah, you did screw up, but he's your dad. And he loves you. What else do we do? We lash out physically or verbally. I mean, some of the most staunch atheists in the world, Richard Dawkins is one, they have the most violent words to describe God. They hate God. Why? I don't think they hate the, the big, awesome, majestic God, king of the universe. I think they hate the fact that their view of God was like, he should have been more like a tender dad, and my life has not come out that way. Richard Dawkins was sexually abused. He had a lot of stuff in his life. And when he thinks of God, he's thinking of a perfect dad, and he's not getting that. So he lashes out, and he's mad. Because dads are supposed to be better than that. What else do we get with attachment? You get angry or cry. We know that. Some of us are struggling to have kids. And we've shed so many tears over this. You're my dad in heaven who can control this, and you don't. We cry. We stonewall and become unresponsive. This is kind of what I do. It's whatever. He's not there for me. I'm just going to stop going to him, stop believing him, stop trusting him. I'm going to do this, fix this on my own. What else? And try to control the situation. So this is kind of one I see in my wife. I hope she's okay with this. She better be. <laughs> the only reason I share it is I, I kind of see it amongst parents. So there's like a, a fear to being a parent of safety and wanting the best for your kid. Especially, I think, in moms. My mom, Aubrey always says, you're the most hands-off parent in the history of the universe. Thank you. I take it as a compliment. <laughs> Aubrey gets scared about stuff with our kids. And rather than trusting that her dad has the best interest of everyone involved, and he's in control and he loves us, she gets tense and anxious and wants to control stuff. I, I got to control it. Dad's not going to do anything about it. It comes down to her view of dad in heaven and a crappy husband, but mostly her view of, <laughs> mostly, does she trust dad? So when, I, when we get in those moments, what I've been trying to do is just paint a personal, real picture of God as a dad who really does love her. And the flow will be trust, peace, anxiety will be gone. She doesn't have to control situations because she trusts her dad in heaven. This is attachment disorder. This is what we all have to varying degrees. We get this? What's my next here? Oh, yeah. So here's, here's where I was just super, super encouraged. I'm a mental analytical guy. And when I preach, I like to break it down and figure out, okay, what is this saying? Where, where is it leading? And here's the reality. The answer to attachment disorder, according to this passage, is not logical in a black and white reasoning and figuring out of theology. It's a very emotion-driven sort of ex experience sort of deal. So here's what I get from them. Let's read this verse and see how God answers our attachment disorder. Go to verse 15 there. So 14 was, we are children of God. 15. Here's what God does to answer this. This tension that we feel. God sees us as kids, we struggle reciprocating. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's what I take from this. Three things. First one is, you have received an affectionate spirit, not a fear-based spirit. All the religions of the world, I went to see the Mormon temple, and then I was asking my neighbor, it's a Mormon family, he's 12, just, was just in the temple, asking him, okay, can you go in the temple? Yeah, how would you be able to go in the temple? I have to meet with my bishop, and he has to prove my worthiness. Every religion has this fear-based, are you good enough? And it's this walking on eggshells, I don't know. And hoping, I hope I'm good enough, I hope I'm good enough. And God says, to answer that, I've given you the Holy Spirit of adoption, who is not a fear-based slave master. He is an affectionate, gentle spirit pointing to dad in heaven. Amen? Affectionate spirit, not fear-based. So think of that. When fear kicks in and drives you and becomes the motivating factor of your heart, that's not of God. Paul told Timothy, yeah, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. God's spirit is good and it's affectionate, and he doesn't use fear to get what he wants. He uses love. You have an affectionate Holy Spirit indwelling you, Christian. You have received an emotional spirit, not a black and white logical spirit. Here's what just struck me. It says here, the spirit of slave fall back, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Whom we cry out. The word there is an intense cry out, Dad. He's saying the spirit that's been given to you is an emotional deal. He comes inside with your emotions. He's not a logical this, this, this. It's a, an emotional, more felt than taught sort of thing. It's emotional. It comes inside. It's a good thing. And isn't that the way it should be with dad? Hey, dad. Good to see you. I just passed high school. Well, good job, son. Uh, here is the money I promised you. Okay. And uh, uh, dad, I just passed high school. <laughs> Hug me. It's an affectionate, emotional thing. That's our dad in heaven. He loves us. And he's not here now, but he spent the spirit to speak to our emotions to remind us of that. Lastly. You have received a gentle, helpful spirit, not a domineering, violent spirit. What do I mean by this? This next part here says, he, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He doesn't come in, the Holy Spirit indwells Christians, and then take over and just start kicking stuff down. It says he comes along our spirit and bears witness that we are children of God. Meaning, he nudges, he whispers, he reminds, he's gentle, like a good dad. He's gentle. Hey, remember, he's taking care of you. The Holy Spirit could be as violent as he needs to be, and he's not. He comes in, and he has a sweet, sweet presence in your heart and soul, reminding you your dad in heaven is in control, and he loves you. That's the Holy Spirit we've been given. So those of you who struggle with attachment disorder, which is all of us, and seeing God in the perfect light like we should as a dad, the answer, according to God, is, well, I've given you this spirit, and he's going to be patient with you, and he's going to be gentle with you. And yes, there's going to be some things you learn that are going to help this like me with the, with the adoption chapter and knowing God. But mostly, it's going to be walking through life, and time and time again, the Holy Spirit is there nudging you and prompting you. God loves you. That's a good God we have. 
No other religions can claim that gentleness. A God that would come indwell us and not just shout and scream, but whisper and remind. This is good news. This is, I mean, I was just blown away because I've gotten so academic with a lot of Christianity. It was just a sweet reminder that God lives inside of me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's working on me. And he's coming alongside my spirit to remind me of all these wonderful truths. That's a good dad. That's the best dad I know of. And I have a pretty good dad. So that's it. Next one here. Let's read verse uh, 16, er, 17. The news just keeps getting better. I love this book. Verse 17 says, And if your children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the next thing we get is we get the treasure of adoption. We are his kids, and as his kids, we are his heirs with his perfect son, Jesus. Now, immediately, your mind should be thinking, what does that mean? Heirship means I get something. An inheritance means I get something. My dad's a construction guy, and he runs a, what he calls a multi-hundred-dollar corporation. <laughs> so one day, he'll be gone, and I get to take over the mighty, mighty multi-hundred-dollar Watt Corporation. And his cat with half a tail, and that's my inheritance from my dad. What do we get from God? Is it physical? Is it material? Is it financial? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Yes, 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 yes. You get it all. You sound a little like the Channel 21 preachers. You do get it all. You just don't get it all in the timing you want it all. You get God, and God will give you whatever you need and whatever you want based off his wisdom and knowledge. That is amazing. As you search the Bible and try to find pictures of adoption, the Jewish faith didn't really have like adoption. The Roman culture had adoption, but it was a little more shallow in that you'd be a grown-up, you didn't have a son yet, so you'd go bring in a strapping young lad to take on your inheritance. It's more like a business. I want my business to continue. I find the best next up-and-coming CEO. Here's my stuff. That's not the adoption according to the Bible. The best story of adoption is in the Old Testament. You won't turn there, but there's a guy named David. How many guys know David? He was a man after God's own heart. And the story of David is he comes after Saul. Saul was an evil king. But Saul had a son named Jonathan, who was a decent guy. Jonathan had a kid, Mephibosheth. Saul's kingdom was crushed, obliterated. Mephibosheth runs away with his nurse. He was, you know, a spoiled little kid. And as he's running away, he falls and he gets lame in his leg. So he's crippled. So David's in control. His enemy is now dead. David can do whatever he wants. He can go out and destroy all the children of his enemy, which he should, which is what all the kings back then did. And David said, hey, servant, come here. Is there anyone left in Saul's house, Saul's house that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I don't think anything of Saul or his kids, but there's this guy, Jonathan, who deserves something. Does that sound familiar? There's this guy, Jonathan, who was great. And on his behalf, I'm going to start to pour out my mercy on some people. And he says, well, there's this one guy, Mephibosheth. He's lame in his legs. He's pretty worthless. He lives out wherever. And David said, bring him to me. And here's the picture you need to have in your head when you think about it being an heir of God. He brought him to his kingly table, and it says he ate with him for the rest of his life. And he says, what have you lost since your daddy, the evil one, Saul, was gone? 
well, all my land, all that. Give it all back. All you servants, you are now serving Mephibosheth. Saul is the evil one, kind of like Satan. We're the sons of Satan according to the whole Bible. And God in his infinite mercy goes to us and says, not because you're anything good, but because Jesus was good, I'm going to bestow everything on you. And I'm going to carry your sorry sack to the table. That's the gospel. We are crippled, lame, separated from God. There's no way we're going to get up and walk our way back to God. So God has to say, where is this guy? I'll go grab him. I'll pick him up. Sit at my table. Everything is yours. That's our dad. That's amazing. We are heirs of God, and we are seated at his table forever. Does that mean I get money? Sure. (laughs) Food? Yeah. You're at the table with the guy who owns it all. He'll give you whatever he thinks is best for you. That's good news. And lastly, this little nugget here. Luke will get into more next week, but... It says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then it ends kind of, it's been like amazing news, amazing news. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Seems like a weird way to end such a great adoption process. You want to be my kid? There's suffering, by the way. Why would he have to include that? It seems like it's a conditional statement. If you suffer then the adoption will be complete. The whole passage is the adoption is complete, but oh yeah, even as my son, and even me being perfect and in control, you're gonna suffer. Jesus suffered. He was far better than you. Suffering is part of your life. That's weird. That's weird to think God's all power. So if you ever talk to atheists, one of the famous quotes attributed to some guy way back when, so you say God is all powerful and God is all loving. Yes, I had this Muslim kid tell me this one time. Okay, then if he's all-powerful, why is there suffering? He's not powerful enough to stop it. And if he's all-loving, then he just doesn't care enough to stop it. So your God sounds pretty lame. And that's a legitimate, legitimate thought. God is all-powerful, yes and amen. God is all-loving, yes and amen. Then why is there suffering? And more specifically, why is there suffering for the people he calls his kids? That's That's rough. I mean, here's, here's what Christianity is for some of you. As God planned it out, you're going to get saved, and you're going to have a miscarriage, and another miscarriage, another miscarriage. Your marriage is going to tank. But you're, you're my dad, and you're powerful, and you're loving, and the plan you have for me is horrible. How do we reconcile this? Here's the great thing about suffering is Christians actually can go to a solid answer. The rest of the world just chucks it up as this world stinks. But Christians can say, my dad said that's the way it should be. So I'm trying to train little Elijah. Holy smokes, what a... So he's, he's pretty good. But I'm trying to kind of set the framework for these talks going forward. So whenever we give them good stuff, birthday parties, Nerf guns, mud parties, whatever it is, I say, why did you get this stuff? And they'll say, oh, it's my birthday, oh, it's Christmas, or this. And I say, no, it's because I love you. <coughs> why do you get in? It's because I love you. Why am I giving you this quesadilla from Los Faves? Because I love you. 
Why are you getting it? Because I love you. You get the point. Because I love you. We all get that aspect of God. As he gives us stuff, it's because he loves us. Here's what's a struggle. As he takes stuff away and pain comes in and replaces it with pain, that's weird. So here's my little experiment I'm doing with Elijah. He was struggling to listen a little bit, kind of like a lot of you guys and sometimes me. But I said, how do I like paint the picture that even when I'm taking stuff away, it's good? So he's standing there in his favorite getup, his firefighter <laughs> jammies. He's got Ninja Turtle socks up to his knees. He's penny loafers that are way too big for him. He's got his skull bracelet, his camouflage Duck Dynasty hat, everything he loves. And I said, Elijah, the reality is, if I take that hat away from you, it's because I love you. So I said, let's try this. So we go in the room. Elijah, give me that hat. And he fights. And I re-explain. Okay, let's try this. Whatever I make you do, it's because I love you. Elijah, give me that hat. (sighs) Elijah, I like that bracelet. Give me that bracelet. (sighs) I got it at the yard sale, Dad. (laughs) Elijah, I like those jammies. Give me that top. (sighs) This this is weird. (sighs) I like those Ninja Turtle socks. Give me those Ninja Turtle socks. And he's standing there in his undies. (laughs) His dad's holding everything. And I say, son, I know you don't get this, but it's because I love you. And at the end of the day, when it comes to our suffering, that's all we have to hold on to most times. Is our dad in heaven has decided to take away our Ninja Turtle socks and our bracelet. We're standing there in our skivvies. And all we have is we're looking at our dad, and here's what I hope for Elijah. He trusts me, and he knows that I love him. And that's all this passage is saying. Suffering for the Christian is not easier, more hard. It's going to be suffering. It's horrible. But dad's standing there, and he's saying, it's because I love you. And those of you who try to logically make sense of suffering, like, what would I be able to explain to Elijah at three? Let me explain He trusts me. It's a relational thing, and that's what this passage is saying. It's because there's a relationship there. I'll end on this. I came across this poem as I was wrapping up. It says, My life is but a weaving between my father and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. We are God's children. We are his heirs. We get it all, including suffering in this life. But he has given us a Holy Spirit that is gently reminding us that God Our daddy loves us. Amen? Let's pray.